Thank you to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. ExpressVPN secures your internet privacy and home networks so you don't have to worry about it. Visit expressvpn.com slash hopeful and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. This episode is also brought to you this week by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, Future Hindsight listeners. Support our show by sharing this episode with your friends who you think would enjoy it. We have an easy referral link that makes it simple to share episodes through email, social media, your group thread, or wherever you share podcasts. And to say thanks, we'll express gratitude to everyone who signs up to share right here on the podcast. This week, we'd like to thank Mitchell Markov. Thank you. We have some other fun perks we'd like to send your way to when you refer us to 10 friends, including a Future Hindsight button and a Moleskin notebook. Help support the show and get your special link to share at refer.fm slash future hindsight or by following the link in the show notes. I argue in terms of poverty, is that we're playing this large-scale version of musical chairs and that there really are only good opportunities for maybe eight of ten people playing this game. If we step back and look at the structure of the game itself, then we look at things like there aren't enough decent paying jobs for everybody in society. There isn't a safety net that is robust and supports people. These then become the ultimate factors for why poverty exists. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Our guest is Mark Rank, co-author of Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. We bust the myths about why poverty exists in the United States and why it's a systems problem as opposed to an individual problem. Poverty reduction is both the right thing to do and the smart thing to do. So why don't we do more of it? To get to the answer, let's start with unpacking the musical chair analogy. What we're doing in this country is basically playing a large-scale version of musical chairs. And the question is whether we want to focus on who loses out at the game or why the game produces losers in the first place. So picture a game of musical chairs where we have 10 people but only 8 chairs available. And so what I argue in terms of poverty is that we're playing this large-scale version of musical chairs. And so the people who are going to lose out and are going to experience poverty are more likely to have characteristics that put them at a disadvantage in the game. So they don't have as much education, or they might be a single-parent family, or a person of color, say, in an inner-city area. We can point to these characteristics as why they lost out in the game. But if we step back and look at the structure of the game itself, then we look at things Things like there aren't enough decent paying jobs for everybody in society. There isn't a safety net that is robust and supports people. These then become the ultimate factors for why poverty exists. 
So the other thing that is unique about this kind of setup, this game, you know, if we want to change the game, not only is it that we are not providing enough jobs, but also the game is punitive. So the system in the United States makes poverty punitive as a matter of public policy, which is a political decision, as you mentioned. The U.S. provides very little support for the poor. How does the safety net, social support for the poor, work in the United States? So as you point out, the United States has a much weaker social safety net than, say, other high economy countries in Europe and Canada and other places. And one of the big sort of explanations in the United States is the explanation of individual blame, that there's something wrong with the person. They're not working hard enough or they've made bad decisions in their life and so on. And therefore, the attitude is, well, we shouldn't reward that. And that has really under relied a lot of our approach towards dealing with poverty in this country. It really is this question of the deserving and the undeserving poor. And in the United States, we view many of those who are in poverty as undeserving of any kind of assistance. So the result of that is that we have a much weaker social safety net and we wind up having much higher rates of poverty. So if you look at a number of other countries, what you see is that before before you take into account social welfare programs, the rates of poverty are somewhat similar to what the United States is. But once you account for those social programs, they're able to reduce poverty by 75, 80%, whereas in the United States, we're only able to reduce poverty by 25 or 30%. The one program that we do have that is quite effective in reducing poverty is social security. And that has a huge effect on on reducing poverty for the elderly. So it's estimated that if we had no social security in the United States, the poverty rate for the elderly would go from about 10% right now to about 40%. And that illustrates how a social safety net and social programs can really have an effect on reducing poverty. I think the key question here is when we go back to the analogy of the musical chairs is that one of the chairs needs to be support for the poor and another part needs to be providing more jobs. So as you said just now, the poverty myth is that people are poor because of a moral failure or they're not working hard enough or they're not educated enough. But actually, the reality is that 40% of all American jobs right now are low-wage jobs paying less than $16 an hour. So in fact, many more people are poor than we think. And so really, it's a systems problem as opposed to an individual problem. Definitely. And, you know, some of the work that I've done on looking at the life course risk of poverty really illustrates that. The numbers come out in terms of poverty each year and between 10 and 15 percent of the population experience poverty. But if we look across the life course and we say how many people at some point will experience poverty, then the numbers are, depending on how you define poverty, between 60 and 75 percent of the American population at some point will experience a year in poverty. What that implies is that poverty is really systemic, that as you said, it's the result of not enough decent job opportunities. It's the result of political failings in terms of social programs. So when we look over the long term, we really see the systemic nature of poverty. 
Right. So what is the myth about who's poor? What I would say is that it's really un-American for somebody to be working full time and still be in poverty. And if we get the minimum wage up to about $15 an hour, then we can say that if you're working full time, you should be able to support a family of two or three just above the poverty line. And to me, that's really consistent with the emphasis we place in America on the value of hard work. I've talked to many people, you know, in poverty or, or near poverty, and some of the hardest working people are working at those kinds of jobs that don't pay very much. Some of the most backbreaking labor is found in those kinds of jobs. And so I think it's only consistent with our beliefs if we say, if you work hard full time, you shouldn't have to be in poverty. That just seems wrong. So that's certainly one of the myths of poverty that people who are poor are not working hard or are lazy or whatever. That just really isn't the case. There are so many other myths besides that a lot of people view poverty as something that happens to somebody else, that it's too bad, but it's not going to happen to me. Well, as I said, between 60 and 75% of the adult population at some point will experience poverty. So rather than thinking about poverty as an issue of them, we really should think about poverty as an issue of us, that it really affects most of us directly. Another myth that's sort of related to that is that, well, you know, it's too bad, but the overall cost of poverty is borne by those who experience it. I did a study a couple years ago with a graduate student here, and we tried to estimate what's the overall economic cost of childhood poverty to the United States. We factored in the idea that if you're a child and you're growing up poor, you're more likely to have health problems, and that's a cost on the healthcare system. You're less likely to be an economically productive worker when you get older. Criminal justice costs are higher. What we found was that the overall economic cost of childhood poverty on an annual basis was around $1 trillion. That's every year. So because of the high poverty in the United States, we pay a tremendous price. We're spending our money on the back end of the problem rather than the front end of the problem. So we also estimated that for every dollar we would spend reducing childhood poverty, we would save somewhere between 7 and $12 down the road in those other costs. So not only is addressing poverty the right thing to do from a social justice perspective, but it's also the smart thing to do from an economic perspective. Yeah, when I read those numbers, I was really gobsmacked. You know, you mentioned $1 trillion, which is uh, about... 28% of the entire federal budget in 2015, uh, according to the numbers that you cited. But at the same time, you also cite that it would only cost $86.9 billion to basically lift every poor child under 18 in a year above poverty. It doesn't even compute. It's like a drop in the bucket. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And So the question is, well, 
That seems so obvious. Why don't we do that? There are a number of reasons that we could think about, but one of them goes back to this question of blame and deservingness and the fact that so many people view poverty as an individual failure. Empirically, it's wrong. But again, from a pragmatic point of view, it's not a smart policy because we spend at least a trillion dollars a year on the fallout from having so many children in poverty in the United States. Well, I think it's apt that you spend a lot of time talking about these poverty myths, because I think it's precisely this fervent belief in them across the board in the United States that prevent us from seeing the problem clearly and prevent us from seeing that it's a systems problem to the point of the musical chairs. And therefore, we don't have the political will to tackle this from a systems perspective. I thought (laughs) this was very sad. You paraphrased Mark that the American dream may be the opiate of the American people. Yeah. A few years ago, I had a book that came out on the American dream. And one of the things that you find with the American dream is that one of its elements is the idea of hope and optimism that, you know, even though things are tough now, they will get better in the future. What that does is it says, well, you know, we don't really need to address the problems now because eventually they will work out. That belief has really, I think, gotten in the way of us dealing with some of these issues. In spite of all the sort of research and empirical evidence that counter these myths, why do they continue? Certainly one of the reasons is that if we believe that those in poverty are responsible, then, you know, I really have no social responsibility for addressing that. But the other thing that I think is important that we talk about in the book is that politicians over the years have used these myths for political traction. So the issue of welfare and welfare freeloaders and welfare cheats and all of this kind of thing has been used repeatedly over and over, particularly by conservative politicians. And it's also been used as a code word for race, for black. So people use these myths, particularly political actors use those myths to their advantage to sort of gain traction in the populace. And people say, yeah, we need to get tough on welfare recipients and everybody is for that. And that's been used used as, again, a political issue. It's uh, almost ironic that it's actually politics that can solve it, and yet it's politics that, you know, perpetuates the myth. I don't know if that's going to change with the new administration. I know that in many ways, if we talk about the logic of things, really just does not persuade people. They believe what they believe, and then they're just going to have, you know, selective (laughs) memory or, or, you know, pick and choose the things that agree with their worldview and then trot those things out. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that I had not considered the idea of the zero-sum game of improving education in the absence of increasing the number of good jobs. So in fact, a lot of people who are in low-paying jobs are more educated than they ever were, and yet they continue to be poor. Can you talk about that? So another analogy would be, think about people lined up in a queue. And at the end of the queue are the good jobs. But there are only so many good jobs compared to the people in the queue. So 
if we increase an individual's education, we can move them up in their position in the queue so that they're more likely to get that job. But there's still the same number of people at the back end. Over and over, we hear that if we could only just increase people's education and skills, and that's important. But if that's all we do, we're just shuffling people around. We're not increasing the number of opportunities. We just have people who are more educated that maybe are working at these jobs, but we still have the same number of people that are being left behind. And in that sense, it's it's really a zero-sum kind of game that we're playing. In a way, it actually intensifies the competition for the same jobs, right? There are more people now qualified to do that job. And I read recently that essentially trying to get a job at Walmart is almost as competitive as trying to get into Harvard. There are like a thousand applicants for one job. And so, I mean, it's just perverse. That's exactly what happens is that as the number of opportunities decline, employers can be looking for higher and higher qualifications. I think this issue of how do we increase the number of opportunities? How do we increase the number of decent paying jobs? That is the key question as we look into the future. And, you know, as we think about there may be more artificial intelligence and automation and things like that. How are we going to provide enough opportunities for everybody that needs them? And I, I think that's really the key question in terms of also addressing poverty. Before we continue the conversation with Mark Rank, I'd like to thank our sponsor, ExpressVPN. Have you ever gotten one of those creepy targeted ads that thinks you're pregnant because you bought a baby present for your friend? Well, I have, and it freaked me out. Since all internet service providers can legally sell your data in the US, you aren't safe just using incognito mode anymore. Luckily, ExpressVPN is here to help. It's an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. They keep your data totally safe and encrypted, and their service is fast and 100% reliable. Just turn it on and browse worry-free. Since learning about the perils of surveillance capitalism last year from Shoshana Zuboff, I'm careful to keep my data safe. And I do that with ExpressVPN. It's available on all my devices, so I know my family and I are protected wherever we go. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com hopeful, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com hopeful. Go to expressvpn.com hopeful to learn more. I also want to thank our longest-running sponsor, Jordan Harbinger. He hosts The Jordan Harbinger Show, an in-depth interview podcast. The show runs the gamut of guests and topics, but it's a safe bet you'll come away with a new insight or helpful tip, no matter what episode you pick. You might be learning negotiation techniques from an FBI specialist one day and hearing what it's like to be a wanted art forger the next. Jordan isn't giving out wishy-washy pop psychology. He's interviewing the best minds of our time and making their insights easily available to you. I really enjoy the show and think you will as well. There's just so much here. 
check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, you mentioned that when you have an expanding economy, there are more jobs. And so therefore, there's less unemployment. And even people who are in low paying jobs can get a job. And sometimes as the employment market gets tighter, they can get even higher paying jobs. But so right now that we are in a pandemic and a contracting economy, what would be maybe one idea that you've seen work in the past or in other countries that could, in fact, expand the economy, especially in terms of expanding work for low-wage workers? So a couple things here. One, you know, bringing this up that as the economy does better or as the economy does worse, poverty rates go up or down, that again is a structural condition. So the condition of the economy affects the number of opportunities. So that reinforces the argument that I'm making. Now, in terms of what can we do, there are some interesting ideas out there. For example, the idea of the Green New Deal, that maybe we should be looking to create jobs that also will address some of these environmental problems, that that could be a a place of, of increasing opportunities. One idea that's been certainly pretty effective in the 1930s was the idea of government creating some jobs to do some productive work. There were a lot of things that were done in the 1930s that were actually quite productive. The CCC, the Conservation Corps, there were a number of good things that came out of that. Could we think about ways in which the government might actually be putting people to work in a very productive way in which we can address some of these issues? I think this is a very difficult issue, but it's a very, very key issue in terms of addressing these problems. But if we consider, let's say, even if we cannot expand the economy, despite, let's say, Biden's success in spending more money, would actually changing public policy have an immediate effect in terms of at least reducing poverty through social safety nets? Absolutely. Again, all we have to do is look at a variety of other countries in which they have a robust social safety net that winds up supporting people through a universal health care, through child care assistance, through a lot of things. It prevents people from falling and hitting the ground. If we were to think about, you know, having more robust programs, both in terms of providing direct assistance, in terms of cash and in-kind kinds of programs, but also in terms of some of these important resources like healthcare and childcare, we could definitely reduce the number of people who are in poverty. If you look across countries, you're struck by the fact that the United States has the highest rates of poverty among virtually all of the OECD or the high economy countries in the world. We are at the high point. The question is why? Well, An obvious answer is that we do so little to address poverty, and these other countries do much more. So that in and of itself could have a huge effect on reducing the number of people in poverty. And again, to go back to my point, this is not only the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do. Because when people fall into poverty, 
it creates a lot of social problems. It creates a lot of drag on the economic system and on the social systems. So it's much better to address these problems on the front end rather than on the back end. Yes, I think that will, however, require a lot of buy-in and in terms and debunking these poverty myths once and for all, which is really difficult. And you spend a whole chapter talking about that. So, well, if you could speak to the American people directly, what would you say to them to, you know, really get people to understand that this is a systems problem? I would say... Let's talk about what the reality is here, but let's also talk about what America should stand for. If we think about this country, does this make us proud that we have the highest rates of child poverty in the industrialized world? Is that something we should, should aspire to? I don't think so. So if we think about trying to make America great again, if we think about trying to make America a good and great country, I think a very logical place to start is by reducing the extent of poverty. So for example, when we think about Black Lives Matter and we think about unrest occurring, I think poverty and low income underlies a lot of those problems. So to make our country a better country, I think a really good place to start is by addressing this issue of poverty, which also will begin to address the issue which we haven't talked about at all, but which is really important, the issue of widening inequality in the United States. This will begin to get at that. So I guess that's that's what I would say is that, you know, if we think about what we should be doing in this country in the future, I think addressing poverty is really, really key. Yes, totally agreed. I know we haven't really spoken about inequality. I'm not quite sure we have enough time for all of it, but it <laughs> relates directly to this, of course. But so as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to demand public policy to reduce poverty? I think democracy really begins with conversations and talking with people. And so talking to your friends, talking to your neighbors, talking to your family about these issues, and then thinking about you know, various ways of trying to change the mindset. So the idea of organizing, Black Lives Matter is a great example of organizing, really having a significant effect on the United States in terms of thinking about the issues of race and ethnicity. Could we think about a kind of a movement or a way of having the same thing happen with poverty and inequality? Certainly about 10 years ago, there was the Occupy movement you know, with the 1% and the 99%, that did raise some really important issues. And I will say that I think, especially in the progressive wing of the political system, there is certainly much more discussion today about inequality and poverty than there was 10 years ago. I'm actually quite optimistic that I think we will be seeing some important changes in the future. But in terms of individuals, I think it always starts with discussions and conversations and then moving from there to actions. You know, certainly voting is one thing, but there are many others as well. Yeah, perfect. Well, here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? 
As we talked about, we have a, a new administration, and I think there's been a growing concern, again, perhaps over the last 10 or 15 years, in the Democratic Party, and particularly the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, that the direction of this country in terms of inequality, in terms of poverty, is not the way we want to go. I do think that we are going to start addressing some of these issues. I think we will learn from other countries in terms of ways that we can be effective in addressing these issues. For example, the environmental movement. 40 years ago, who would have thought that we would have legislation and we would be so concerned about the environment? And the reason why we are concerned is we realized that the environment affects us all. And that's the way we need to think about poverty and inequality, that that affects us all. And therefore, we really need to be proactive in addressing it. Yes, agreed. I hope you're right that we will do this. And I'm optimistic as well that at least we will have a receptive person in the White House. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and congratulations on your book. Oh, thanks so much. It was a pleasure being on your show. We've heard it on several episodes here on the podcast before that poverty is a systems problem and not an individual problem. And moreover, that it's punitive, but also that it can actually be remedied. Having heard this from scholars who've been in the field for decades leaves little room for optimism that Americans will actually believe the truth about poverty and accept it as a fact. If we'll never manage to persuade people that poverty is not the result of a moral failing, maybe the only way to solve it is to change the structure, to ensure a safety net and expand the opportunities. That, of course, is not easy, but it may be easier to eradicate poverty through public policy than it is to win hearts and minds. The good news is that the Biden administration appears to be doing exactly this. Increasing the child tax credit under the American Rescue Plan is projected to reduce child poverty by half. In addition, if and when an infrastructure bill is passed, it would not only upgrade our roads and bridges, but it would also create new jobs. Next week, our guest is Erin Hatton. Her latest book is Coerced, Work Under the Threat of Punishment, which studies four different groups of workers, incarcerated, workfare, college athlete, and graduate student. The book uncovers a new form of labor coercion among them and considers the consequences for all American workers. Like all of our bosses have a lot of power over our lives, and so, with this study, I'm really just kind of shining light on another corner of that power in these other jobs where they aren't considered workers. There's something else. They're an athlete. They're a prisoner in good standing. They're a welfare recipient. And their bosses have power over whether they can really stay in that status. And it turns out to be quite a lot of power indeed. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.